Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, June the 13th, which sounds like an ominous date for the superstitious. Welcome anyway. Do you know, around 27 million of us each year will have the misfortune to experience traveller's diarrhoea. This week we published preliminary findings of a phase 2 study suggesting that a preventative vaccine could be developed in the years ahead. And not only that, it could be a vaccine administered through skin patches on the arm. More on that in a moment, after some other highlights from this week's issue of The Lancet dated June the 14th to the 20th. Now Hillary Clinton has dropped out of the battle with Barack Obama to be the Democratic nominee for the upcoming US election, our long editorial takes a close look at what Obama and the Republican candidate John McCain are saying about health issues both inside and outside the United States. In research, a European study highlighting how a preventative approach to cardiac care involving nurse practitioners and a family approach could have a major impact in preventing cardiovascular disease among high-risk groups. And also research suggesting that carbocysteine, a drug that targets the breakdown of mucus, could be effective in the treatment of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. A seminar and linked comment takes a close look at nicotine addiction, saying that a medical approach in the clinic or consulting room is just as important as wider public health measures. We run a mini-series on rare diseases, and a case report documents a serious message about gardening after a British man died after inhaling fungal spores while tending to his garden last summer. Unfortunately, traveller's diarrhoea is something most of us know only too well. But what can we do to prevent it? Results of a phase 2 study published this week suggest that a vaccine patch against the most common pathogen of diarrhoea, enterotoxigenic Escherichia coli, or ETEC, could have future therapeutic effect. To assess the study and its implications, I earlier spoke to Dr David Schlim from the Jackson Hole Travel Centre in Jackson, Wyoming, in the United States. Note, he was not an author on the study we're publishing this week. Dr. Schlim, before we discuss the study, can you give us some background context, please? How and why does traveller's diarrhoea occur? And what has been the main focus of research efforts up until now to try and find a a vaccine? Well, traveller's diarrhoea is caused mainly by bacterial pathogens, although it also includes some protozoal pathogens and viruses. We found out in recent years that the main risk of traveler's diarrhea is not something specific to destination developing countries, but really has to do with restaurant hygiene and the handling of food. And wherever that's been improved, the risk has gone down. But currently, the risk runs anywhere from 30 to 70% of travelers in various destinations can expect to get an infection that could cause some uncomfortable diarrhea. The magnitude of this is such that there's about 22,000 cases of traveler's diarrhea every day. And I just want to put that in the context that that's a nuisance for travelers. It's almost never fatal. But for children in the developing world who are exposed to these exact same pathogens, there are 10,000 deaths per day. We need to keep that in perspective. And in terms of the search for a vaccine, presumably one of the difficulties here is that there are so many potential causes of traveler's diarrhea, where do you focus your effort? Exactly. There's at least four or five major bacterial pathogens, and just like with any other disease, there are different diseases, but happen to manifest as uh, diarrhea and gastroenteritis. And so enterotoxigenic E. coli has been the most common pathogen, and early efforts have focused on trying to find a vaccine against 
this bacteria, but Campylobacter is the next most common one, followed by Shigella and Salmonella. And recently, a kind of E. coli called enteroadherent E. coli has been found to be a significant pathogen. I should say that the, the search for an enterotoxigenic E. coli vaccine was aided by the fact that the toxin that this bacteria produces is very similar to cholera toxin. And so in the efforts to uh, create a cholera vaccine, which was a lot more important in terms of morbidity and mortality, it was discovered that the early cholera vaccines were able to provide some protection against enterotoxigenic E. coli. Can we now move to the current study published in The Lancet this week? We should stress you're not connected directly with the study. Can you just briefly outline the study by French and colleagues that we're, that we're discussing here? And also, I think it's important to stress, isn't it, it is a phase two field study, so it's important at phase two for people to be aware of what the primary and secondary objectives were. This was a study in which uh, the researchers were able to use one of the toxins from the enterotoxigenic E. coli, something called the heat labile toxin. And when they try to give this toxin in the mucosa, it's too toxic. It is a toxin, and that's what it's supposed to do. So they managed to find out that by preparing a transcutaneous skin patch, they could expose dendritic skin cells to this toxin, create a fairly brisk immune response, and then the purpose of the study was to see whether this, in fact, offered any protection against enterotoxigenic E. coli. So they had already found in volunteers that there was an immune response, and this Phase two study was the first effort to try to see whether there was any protection to continue to monitor safety and also to try to get enough control patients in order to see what the range of pathogens were in the destination sites. They did this study in Mexico and in Guatemala, recruiting people who were going down there already for other reasons, and they vaccinated them by putting on this skin patch uh, that was given two to three weeks apart, two doses, and then they monitored them down there. They ended up with about 178 people in the study, which amounted to about 60 people who were vaccinated and about 111 who received placebo. How would you summarize the main findings? And I guess, again, as it's phase two, efficacy wasn't one of the primary aims, was it? It was more to do with safety and immunogenicity? That's what it started out, but the authors were excited by the fact that there was slightly less cases of diarrhea in the vaccinated people, but significantly uh, decreased symptoms, which may prove to be one of the most important endpoints of a diarrhea vaccine. In order to understand the, the value of a, of a vaccine against uh, diarrhea pathogens, we need to really try to understand how natural immunity is acquired. And there's actually been very few studies of this. It's difficult to study uh, longitudinally. But we did some studies in a clinic that I ran in Kathmandu, Nepal, for 15 years. We found that immunity takes place quite slowly. It takes one or two years to show a decrease in episodes of diarrhea, and then that continues to decrease over the next four or five years in a stepwise, steady decrease that you can measure. We don't know what happens really after that, but this seems to be similar to what happens to children in developing countries where the majority of their of the significance of diarrhea is in the first five years of life and after that becomes kind of a nuisance rather than a serious problem. And that's what happens with expatriates who take up residence. The, they still get loose stools, but they rarely get very sick after they've lived there for a few years. So 
if a vaccine could in fact mimic that, even if it didn't prevent loose stools but prevented people from having severe cramps, fever, blood in the stool, vomiting, then it would be worthwhile. That was one of the things that they discovered in this study is that uh, people had significantly fewer stools than among those who did get diarrhea who were in the vaccinated group. I should say that the ETEC produces both an ST and an LT toxin, stabile and labile toxins, and they also produce both. So there's three types of infection with this organism, and the, the vaccine didn't protect so well against the labile toxin only. It protected a little better against the stable toxin, but because there were so few cases, only about 10 or so altogether, that's why this phase two study is not able to really be definitive about the protective effect of the vaccine. Returning to the administration of the, of the vaccine as a patch, as you said, the toxin's too strong for it to be given in a, in a conventional way, but presumably administration via a patch would be quite desirable to people, to travellers who are going to use it because it's easy to administer. Well, we don't know yet. It requires a, a disposable device that roughs up the skin slightly and then this patch is put on for, it looked like, four to six hours and then the person removes it at home. So it would be incredibly convenient if this could be prescribed over the phone and somebody could learn to put this on uh, at home without a doctor visit, without taking time off from work, which is one of the challenges. The other, and the question of whether one or two doses will be necessary would also be an issue in terms of whether they show up uh, enough in advance of their travel. It would be two or three weeks in this particular instance. Then the other thing would be the cost of this and, and the duration of the immune response, which given the history of what we know about immunity and exposure to pathogens may not be long lasting. So if the people have to get two patches if they have doctor visits associated with that, if the cost is, you know, between, in the U.S. anyway, $100 and $200 for these two doses, it's a question of how practical it will be in the end. The other question is if it only protects against enterotoxigenic E. coli, which ranges from 25 to 50% of the risk depending on the destination, and let's say that it were you know, 50 to 60% effective, the person would still run a risk of having traveler's diarrhea, having to carry an antibiotic to treat themselves. So these, this has been one of the limiting factors with all of the efforts to create a diarrhea vaccine is that one bacteria at a time, the cost, the dosing, the duration, and the fact that it wouldn't protect uh, completely. Two final questions, if I may, please. Firstly, what happens next in terms of the potential of this patch for enterotoxigenic Escherichia coli? And secondly, do you think this mode of administration through the patch could be explored, investigated in other areas of vaccine production? Well, what I understand is the authors uh, were incredibly encouraged by this, and the authors actually own the company that's creating uh, this vaccine, so they're highly motivated to continue the studies. And they want to do a phase three trial involving a lot more patients and hopefully in destinations where they'll get a, um, more of a variety of pathogens. There were no non-E. coli pathogens in the control group in these two destinations. They wonder whether this, uh, this possibility that this vaccination could, could protect against other pathogens, and they hypothesize about this in the paper, but that remains to be seen. So if other E. coli vaccine uh, studies... They have, there have been some small studies that showed some promise, 
and then it didn't prove to be practical in larger studies. So the hope with this technology and this vaccine is that, in fact, it will prove itself in the larger studies, which they will now undertake. In terms of whether other vaccines can be adapted to this technology, it certainly seems promising, and it's similar to the fact that some vaccines can be given intradermally, and this certainly is a lot simpler than the technical aspects of injecting a tiny amount with a needle under the skin. So we'll see whether other people begin to explore the possibilities of presenting antigens to the body in a similar fashion. Dr. David Schlim on the line from Wyoming in the United States. Thanks very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. Yeah, thank you, Richard. It was enjoyable. Dr. David Schlim concluding this week's podcast. Many thanks for listening. See you next week.